Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Let's turn our Bibles this morning, Luke chapter 3. We're going to look again at verse 20 and 21. You're going to say, well, wait a minute. We just, we've been there for two weeks already. Yep, we're going to be there just a little bit longer. Uh, Verse 21, rather. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Let's read this and then we'll pray. Luke three chapter uh, Luke chapter three verse twenty one. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, and the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heavens which said, "You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased." Let's pray, Father. We just thank you this morning, and Lord, as we again look at these verses, I pray that you would meet us in them. That, Lord, you'd open our hearts to the truth revealed in them, a truth, Lord, that points not only to an event you submitted yourself to, but something that points to something important about who you are. So, Lord, help us to see that this morning. Help us to see the God, who you are, the full picture of the God of who you are in this passage, so that it would be clear in our hearts and minds, and we would receive you for who you tell us you are. Father, lead us now by the power of your Spirit, Lord. Give me a a second wind after already teaching this once today. Lord, give me that second breath of your Spirit moving in me. Overflow me again. Overflow all of us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us to see in this what it is that you place for us there to see. For it's in Jesus' name we all prayed these things, and God's people prayed everywhere. Amen. Well, last week we spent time looking at Luke and Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus, but I made mention of something important that I want to return to briefly this morning that I just mentioned in passing. I mentioned in passing last week that this these couple of verses here, this event of Jesus' baptism, not only talks about his baptism in terms of water baptism, spirit baptism, but it also gives us a visible and powerful display of the Trinity of God at work right here in this moment. Jesus, God the Father, was present and submitting. God the Spirit was present, coming upon and empowering. And God the Father was present, speaking and confirming. All three persons of the Godhead were present and they were involved in this event, which, which puts to rest any notion that the Trinity is somehow not a biblical concept. Now, I want to talk about that some today, because I know that there are those who, even during this time, I, 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 you know, I said to the group this morning that, you know, what's worse than being shut in with a pandemic is being shut in with a pandemic with social media in our hands, our devices, because we're being inundated with all sorts of theological ideas and doctrinal ideas and all kinds of stuff. And and sadly, there's a lot of false stuff that's circulating in Christianity today. And I think it's just being magnified in this time in which we're in. And I want to talk about this particular issue because I do think that there is an an undermining that takes place within Christianity to do away with this idea that somehow that the Trinity is not a biblical concept. 
But I'm going to tell you, there's no way getting around the fact that the Trinity is a biblical concept, no matter how hard people might try to disclaim it or, or to teach around it. There is no getting away from it, even though the word, and, and, and cultists will tell you this, well, the word Trinity isn't found anywhere in our Bibles. Well, that's true. The word Trinity is not found in our Bibles. But the triune nature of God is found there, and it is a concept that is revealed throughout, and it cannot be denied. The Bible clearly speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as separate and distinct persons, and yet, and I say the and yet because it's an important and yet, the Bible also clearly presents them as comprising one God. And so we apply the term Trinity to capture that idea. Tri meaning three, unity being one. And so tri-unity equals Trinity or three yet one. Now, some have illustrated the concept of the Trinity by using an egg. You know, an egg has three components. It has a shell, it has white, it has a yolk. And, and yet it's, it's, it's one in its composition, but but that illustration, it can be an illustration, but it falls short because an egg consists of parts. And the concept of the Trinity in no way implies that God is made up of various parts. In other words, it isn't that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are different faces or different aspects of God. All are three separate persons, and yet all are one God. All are the same God. They are one. Maybe the closest illustration we can use is the mathematical equation of one times one times one equals what? One, right? But even that illustration falls short because what we're doing is we're trying to explain an, an uncreated reality th that is not of this world with, with created things of this world, and that never works out. Folks, the, the simple truth is that the Trinity is a mystery that cannot be fully comprehended by the human mind. It, it's not a contradiction, but it's a paradox. It's a paradox. And as such, I realize that, yep, it's a difficult idea for us to grasp with our human minds, but it is nonetheless what the Scriptures reveal to us about God. It's what the Scriptures describe God as being. In fact, from the very beginning... The scriptures have presented God in this way. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, I'll just read these for you, but you might want to jot the verses down. But Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, right at the very beginning of scripture, Genesis 1 verse 26, then God said, let us, ooh, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, you'll note the plural pronouns there. If you did turn to that verse, or if you want to jot it down, you might want to underline or at least write it down, but note the plural pronouns that are used there. Us, our, as God speaks of his creation of man, speaking of himself, his creation of man. And yet he's referring to more than just himself in the creation process. Even God's name used here in the Hebrew is in a plural form. 
the word God. When he says, then God said, that word God is the word in the Hebrew of Elohim. Elohim is what we might refer to as a compound unity. A compound unity implies plurality, and yet it implies singleness. It implies one yet many. Had God intended to refer to himself in the singular, he would have simply used a different word. He would have used the singular form of the word El, which would have been the word he would have used, El, rather than Elohim. But he chose Elohim because it best describes who he is in his total composition. We find the same concept of plurality at singleness applying to God in other places of Scripture as well. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is a passage that contains a declaration referred to as the Shema. The Shema is referred, uh, is, it's, it's a statement in Scripture that's revered by Jews because it declares the oneness of God. Here's what it says. You know this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jews today use this passage in many cases to counter the Christian belief in the Trinity. Orthodox Jews have even been known to break into shouts of the Shema, shouting at Christians, highlighting the word one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're emphasizing it over. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. They do that because they believe that Christianity is professing a polytheistic or a multi-God form of religion rather than a monotheistic form of religion as Judaism is. And such a polytheistic belief from their viewpoint is absolutely heretical and blasphemous. And let me just say it is. It is blasphemous. It is heretical if we ascribe to polytheism, but we don't ascribe to polytheism. Yet we believe, just as they do, that God is one God, that there is only one God. In fact, we even look to this particular passage containing the Shema to support the view that we hold of the triune nature of God, which is really interesting because it's plainly revealed to us in the language itself something that their eyes are blinded to at this time. What do I mean by that? Well, just this. The word one... When it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the Hebrew, the word is achad. Now, achad, like Elohim, is also a compound unity. It's a compound one. In other words, God is again referring to himself, even in this passage known as the Shema. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he's referring to himself as a plurality of one. Had he intended it for it to be any other way, he would have done the same thing that he would have done back in Genesis. He would have used the singular form of the word, which would have been yahid, but he didn't. He chose the word achad, which is a plurality of one. In fact, the word achad shows up all over the Old Testament, and and in every case it gives us this picture of singleness, and yet it's used in the context of a unity, a plurality. For example, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. 
That word there for first day is the word chad being placed in there, and yet it's a compound unity in the sense that it's a single day, and yet it's composed of a plurality of day and night, yet it's one day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we find the same idea expressed. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one. Chad is the word flesh. Again, the idea is of a unity, one flesh, but made up of a plurality, the two. Exodus chapter 26, verse 6 and verse 11. Exodus 26, verse 6. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Verse 11 says, And you shall make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together that they may be one. Echad. Same thing in verse 6. One tabernacle. Echad. Yet, what is it comprised of? The 50 golden clasps are used to hold the curtains together so that the tent would be one. Echad. A unity of one made up of a plurality. These distinct parts of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 37 and verse 17. This is a passage where the Lord tells Ezekiel to join together two six. It's prophetically representing, one's representing Ephraim, one's representing Judah, making them one. It's a prophetic statement of how they would be one. But here the word achad is used again. Exodus chapter 37 and verse 17. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, achad, and they will become one echad in your hand. Two sticks joined together, made into one. There's no way that echad has the exclusive idea of absolute singularity and meaning. None whatsoever. And as such, the idea of one God in three persons fits just fine with the concept depicted by this Hebrew term, echad. Now again, the idea here in, in no way is to imply when we talk about the Trinity or in what I'm explaining to you here that, that God is many gods. No. We're in complete agreement with the Jews when it comes to the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one God. Christianity teaches nothing less than that. Just as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures declare to be the same God, one God. The concept of the Trinity simply holds that our one God exists in the form of three persons who are equally and fully the same God. Even Paul declares this truth in regard to Jesus himself in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's a passage you know. We use it often for many applications. But listen specifically what he's saying here, because he's talking about Jesus, and he gives Jesus equality with God, making him one with God. Listen. He says in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul summarizes here this beautiful picture of Jesus, the humble suffering servant who comes, and he comes in the, in, 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 in the form of, of a human being on this earth, and yet he makes very clear that he's God. He, he made no bones that he didn't consider it to be robbery to be equal with God. He was God. He simply chose to come in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ as we know him, you see. And yet God. Even Jesus himself made this same declaration of oneness with God, with the Father. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one. Interesting. I don't think it gets any clearer than that. And yet... There are those that would pull a passage apart like that to, to minimize that, to say, well, what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that he's God. He's just saying that he's one in mind with the Father. He's one in spirit with the Father, just like we're that way with Jesus as Christians. No, that's not what Jesus is saying contextually. Jesus is saying exactly what he's saying. I and my Father are one. Now, again, the idea of the Trinity, which we hold as Christians, does not in any way suggest that we believe that there are three manifestations of God, nor do we believe that there are three faces or aspects of God. Such an idea is known as Sabellianism or modalism, and it's something which traditional Christianity does not in any way hold firm or agree with. There are entire religions within Christianity that do hold to that idea that it's the various faces of God. But even though that view might be easier to comprehend, and I think that's why that's taken root, because it's easier to comprehend. Well, well, what we're talking about are different aspects of God, different characteristics of God, different faces of God. That, that's easier for us with our human minds to comprehend and rationalize, but it is not at all what the Scriptures present to us about God. And so ultimately, it diminishes the nature of the Godhead as the Bible presents it to us for us to give ourselves over to that idea. There's no question that the concept of the Trinity, which, which as traditional Christians we hold, is, it isn't easy to be grasped. It isn't easy for us to understand. It is a mystery beyond our comprehension. But it's absolutely essential that we see this depiction of God, that he's given to us of himself as a compound unity, as a plurality of one, and to accept him as such. Because anything else and anything less, any changes we make to that, is going to lead us to a wrong understanding of God and of Jesus and of his Spirit. And keep in mind, it is a confused and distorted view of the Godhead that is at the heart of most cultic teachings. If you've ever been approached by those in different cultic groups, whether it be the Jehovah Witnesses, or the Mormons, or others, how quickly they will come to attack the divine nature of Jesus. Uh, he, he may be a God, but a lesser one, or a great prophet, or a great man, or, or in sync with God, but they'll attack the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus can't be deity if he's not God. 
Because to hold Jesus as deity and not being God would to create separate gods, and there are no separate gods, and the scriptures are clear on that as well. So even though the, the word Trinity might not be found anywhere in the Scriptures, it is a concept that the Scriptures speak to nonetheless. And we see it here visibly on display on this day when Jesus was baptized because all three members of the Trinity are present and they're interacting. Jesus, God the Son, was the focus. But God the Spirit is descending upon him, and God the Father is speaking. All three are present, and, and we see it throughout the Scriptures. And it's clearly portrayed. So we, so, so that we'll know it is God that as he exists, he exists in his fullness as one God, yet as three separate and distinct persons as that one God. So one writer summed it up well. He said this, within his own mysterious being, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The designations are just ways in which God is God. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally, God himself. One God. Now, you might be asking me at this point, so what? What's it matter? Why, why is belief in the Trinity a big deal? Why, why go off on this tangent today? Why do that? Well, it certainly isn't because I didn't have enough other material to teach on. <laughs> I mean, I've got the whole gospel of Luke because I felt that the Holy Spirit wanted us to stop here because this is essential. It's essential to your faith on a couple of levels. Number one, it's essential because belief in the Trinity is essential to the integrity of Jesus' claim about himself. Let me say that again. Belief in the Trinity is essential to the integrity of Jesus' claim about himself. If you deny the Trinity, you have to deny that Jesus is God. And so he's then, if he's not God, then he's an imposter. It makes him a liar because he, pro he repeatedly proclaimed himself to be God or received that proclamation from others about himself without pushing it off, just as we looked at in John chapter 10 and verse 30. But he also does it in a number of other places. For example, John chapter 8, verse 58. John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Hmm. Now, we read that verse, and on a quick reading, unless you've spent lots of times in your Bible, and I pray you have, you read that, and you think, well, Jesus, you know, what's he talking about here? Well, that, was, that was a distinct statement and declaration of divinity that he was making on his part. And, and you know how we also know that besides the words he uses? And we'll talk about those words in a moment. We know it because of the reaction that comes in verse 59, where we find that right after Jesus makes this statement, the Jewish religious leadership that hears him, they're losing their minds over this, and they're picking up rocks, and they're wanting to stone him to death. Why? Because they knew the implications of what it was that Jesus was saying here. They knew that when Jesus applied this phrase, I am to himself, and then also in the context of saying, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, that he was applying the very name of God to himself. That he was saying, I am God, right there in that statement. You know, people, I hear people say all the time, well, you know, and I see people writing on this stuff. Well, you know, Jesus never said he was God. Yes, he did. Right here he did. 
right here he did. <laughs> Not only there, John chapter 14, verses 7 through 10. Oh, by the way, just that I am, do you know where that comes from? It comes back from the day when Moses looks at God and he says to him, when God wants to send him to Pharaoh and to the people to represent the people, and, and, and he turns to him and he says, well, who should I say sent me? And do you remember God's answer? Tell him that I am that I am sent you. Tell him that I am that I am. That doesn't mean much to us. The, the best, but, but, but the best translation of that would be the all-becoming one. I am the all-sufficiency. I'm the one that meets all your need. I am the one that's everything you need. That would be the idea behind I am. It also means pre-existent. I am, I've always been. <laughs> God declared himself to be, and now here's Jesus taking that name to himself. I am. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 10. John 14, verses 7 through 10. This is where the disciples are asking, you know, Jesus, can you show us the Father? Can you show us? And he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.